Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it. Let him have it, Chris. Button. Switch for everything. You're listening to Aerial View on WFMU East Orange and worldwide on the internet at WFMU.org. before but let's let me set this thing up and tell everybody what the hell's going on here uh, I am down in the uh, the lion's den as I dubbed it the other day because I really hate man cave I hate that expression so um, I thought I would I would name it the lion's den in honor of a couple of things uh, namely this this Exxon or Esso pillow 
that my Zoom H6 is resting on. And uh, the cat, Roger. So for those two reasons, this is now officially the lion's den. Um, down here for lesson number five, I believe this is. Correct. With, uh, Keith Hartel. Do me a favor, turn that mic up towards your face. You can just swivel it on the yeah, clip. You don't I, even have to. I think I did it. Yeah, get your hair off of it. No. Ooh. Your long, luxurious hair. Uh. Um, all right, so n say something again. We'll make sure we can still hear Keith. Uh, hey. uh. Hello. So, um, yeah, we were talking about David Bowie, who uh, recently passed on, who I know was a favorite of yours. And we were going to focus during this uh, particular lesson on some of the uh, guitarists that work mm. with David Bowie. And, yeah. Um, what, what would you, how, first of all, how would you rate his skills, you know, guitar-wise? Was he a good guitarist, do you think? Was he a great rhythm player like John Lennon? Where would you put him? Um, a great rhythm player, maybe not great like John Lennon, because John Lennon was a guitar player. Right. But here's the thing that you can notice, I mean, it was guitar and also um, piano. Right. I mean, this is a guitar lesson, but he also played he, piano. He composed on both? Yes, yeah, yeah. He, he played them both. And he also, he composed on both, played both on records. Um, the only... Bowie played instruments, and I, I mean, I would assume played specifically guitar on every record. Definitely played instruments on every record up until Let's Dance. Let's Dance was the first record that David Bowie played no instruments on. Okay. Because, you know. Because he, he was, you know, making it. Is that a Nile Rodgers record? It's Let's not. Dance? It's the, one of two. Yeah, one of two that Nile Rodgers produced. And the other okay. one wasn't until Black Highway Noise. So that was when David Bowie wanted to be so commercial that he didn't want anyone that couldn't play at the professional studio level on the record, including himself um, playing guitar. Um, but so, so David Bowie's feeling for guitar and rhythm is actually an integral part of the sound of those records. And um, so I would, I would describe his guitar playing as very functional. Um, and and you, can, you can hear it on a lot of things, like on, on certain things that sticks out for sure. Um, and then, like, like the, would you say the earlier records is where you would hear it the best, or? Well, the reason why I think it's easiest to hear on the earlier records is because on the earlier ones, when it's like the default arrangement would have been like an electric and acoustic. So typically, it would be Bowie on the acoustic and Ronson on the electric. So that those would be, you know, you could really hear which guy's doing what. And that in itself, that's a great sound. Like that's, you know, the a Rolling Stones sound, it's a Beatles sound, like the electric and acoustic blend. That's one of those great things that used to be, you know, sort of like if you go to Who, Beatles, Stones, right. Bowie, T-Rex, um, the prominent acoustic and electric mixed together. That used to be like a standard rock and roll sound. Elvis Presley, you know, and it, it was perfect. And uh, Bowie used that a, a real lot on the early stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And especially, I mean, the acoustic sort of goes away a lot starting on Aladdin Sane, I guess. But the, uh, it's even a lot, you know, Man, Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust. And then if you want to go backwards to Space Oddity, um, of course, it's all over Space Oddity, his guitar playing. Well, I was telling you the other day, I was listening to that um, Santa Monica recording. Yes. 1972, I believe, yes. was the final Ziggy Stardust concert because, you know... I, I think I'm right no, about the that. final was 1973 because that's the one that was in the movie uh, Hammersmith Odeon oh the one that's all out of focus well, who shot that somebody it was um, some, some some famous it was director Baker oh yeah 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 or it was it might not have been though I might be mixing but I think it was I think it was D.A. Pennebaker and the thing was it didn't get released because that's how bad it looks right but it wasn't released until it's still it was in the 80s it was first released but um, 
Yeah. I tried. Yeah, I tried watching it. I was like, damn, that's a shame. It's you know, funny. I mean, it's still worthy as a document, obviously, but it's you know. You know what's he, funny? He made this aesthetic decision that just seems weird. Mm. What's funny? That ended up being a movie. Like when you first get to see it, it looks and sounds so shitty that you're like, oh, I see why they didn't release this. And then if you're a different kind of David Bowie fan, you end up seeing it so many times that it doesn't even... It, but they did end up improving it, like definitely um, sonically a big improvement. But I went to see it at the film forum, I guess in like the early 2000s or so. Um, and yeah, they were just cranking the sound like they do at the film forum if they're showing a music thing. And it was, it was magnificent. <laughs> and it was the same stupid movie. But um, there's a lot of cool stuff about that. One of the things I like about it is that, because um, I have, of course, the DVD, and you listen to the commentary. So one of the things about that movie is the famous thing before though there were these hideous cell phone cameras that you can't enforce, is that you go to a rock concert, they'd say, no cameras, no flashes. So what the director said was the opposite. He said, please, take as many flash photographs as you want. So when you watch this movie, there's all these flashes going on, and they actually pr provide a lot of the light and the cinematic effect. Is just people taking flash pictures. Oh, so if you go I like watch that the, idea, if you watch the movie now and you have that in mind, you just see it immediately because it's just constantly happening. But because if you don't know that, it doesn't it doesn't register that way. It just seems like excitement. I will give it a second chance. Is second. what I will do. Second, because uh, I, I I didn't watch the whole thing through, so I should I should probably watch it. But where would you begin in any conversation of uh, David Bowie guitarists? Would you start with Mick Ronson? I mean, or yeah, was yeah. there somebody before him? Well, that, that's the thing that is, you would really think of as. Working, having worked with David Bowie exclusively well, or mostly before Mick Ronson, um, there's guys that you hear. I think John Hutchinson, I think it was a guy's name, but he's like some guy. Yeah. Um, but John Hutchinson, what he is known for, he was Bowie's like pre Mick Ronson partner when Bowie was more acoustic. And um, now, if we've got to get real about stuff, one of the things that has been said about Bowie, which gets said about a lot of these kind of people, is that he stole a lot of shit from people he worked with. So this John Hutchinson guy, some people make a case that he um, co-wrote Space Oddity. Um, and Space Oddity has really great uh, chord changes. And that's Bowie's first like classic song. Right. But um, what happens is that when he finds Mick Ronson, and the first album he does with Mick Ronson is Man Who Sold the World, that is the first time that he has a really great musician with a distinctive voice, a distinctive style. Yeah. And Bowie never didn't have that again. Right. He always, he always had, I mean, in the band overall, because, I mean, on Minnesota of the World, it was Ronson. Uh, Mick Woodmansey was the drummer who stayed as the Spiders, you know, in the Spiders from Mars. Woody Woodmansey? Woody Woodmansey. Mick Woody Woodmansey. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tony Visconti played bass. So the story was that Mick Ronson was from a place called Hull, which I guess was some backwoods um, yeah. working man, coal mining minor town or something. And I think that might be literally true, the coal mining thing. He was a grave digger, if I get, if I might shit right. Um, he was a grave digger. And um, so... so the Sorry, other, everybody. I'm trying to figure out where to put my mic. Please forgive me. Uh, Mick Woodmansey and Trevor Boulder, who you know came on board when uh, Tony Visconti didn't keep on playing the band. They were just the guys that were Mick Ronson's blues band. And Mick Ronson was a Jeff Beck acolyte who um, played in a blues rock band called The Rats. Aha. Uh -huh. uh, and Hull. so where would Bowie have seen him? Where would he have encountered him? You did know, somebody say, hey, you got to go check this guy out? Or was it a case of... It was some kind of word of mouth thing. That part of the story I don't remember, but I believe that mm. Mick Ronson was recommended and they got together. 
Um, it's funny. There's a if you listen to the BBC um, box, they have a recording of um, they do width of a circle. And when Bowie's talking, he's just like, yes, I just met Mick. And it's like, I think he met him that week or something like that. He's just like, yeah, we just started playing yesterday. And I think we're going to stay together. Like, he's really enthusiastic about this new guitar player he found. Wow. And uh, it's interesting, too, because um, the song is not, I mean, are you familiar with that song? Yeah, that's oh. the one I was mentioning to you on Facebook the other day. I mean, the one I was listening to. From oh, right, right, Monica right, right. That's like 16 minutes long or whatever the hell it is. Well, that's a great one to talk about because, first of all, it's um, like I said. It's a tour de force, is it's, what it it's is. It's a tour de force, yeah. And I it, mean, he's holding out everything in that song. Yeah, he's unpacking everything, every technique. I think that you associate with Mick Ronson is yes. represented in that number. Quite and every technique you associate with Mick Ronson, mm. you associate with Jeff Beck. But if you were like me, you, I mean, I heard Mick Ronson a long time before I heard Jeff Beck play on Roger the Engineer by the Yardbirds. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you hear Roger the Engineer by the Yardbirds, some of that stuff, you're like, oh, that's Mick Ronson. Mm-hmm. Because Jeff Beck didn't keep on sounding like that. Right. Because they were Yardbirds heads. But before Roger the Engineer, Mick, uh, Jeff Beck was playing the Telecaster. Yeah. Roger the Engineer, it sounds like, you know, again, I'm, I'm off the top of my head, it very much sounds like he's playing Les Paul. I know he got a Les Paul after you heard the Blues Breakers album. Sounds extremely Les Paul, but that's the Ronson sound um, is all over that record. Um, but then Mick Ronson, the difference is that um, Jeff Beck, you know, in the Yardbirds, you know, he's playing mainly just over kind of very conventional blues stuff or very, very conventional pop stuff. Right. So Bowie was put, you know, doing weird stuff. So you sort of get this traditional blues based approach over weirdo music and it gets really interesting. And, uh, and Mick Ronson had an excellent, he had an excellent sense of melody. Like he was definitely able to go outside of the blues box. Right. And um, he also, he was, it was, you know, known to, to arrange strings and all that kind of stuff too, which he did on the uh, Bowie Records and on uh, Lou Reed Transformer. And he plays on Lou Reed Transformer too. Well, I didn't know that. Co-produced it and plays on it and arranged strings for it. A dude... Dude was good. Yeah. No, I look when I first uh, realized, like you know, who that was playing on those records. I started delving into him a little bit. Yeah. And you know, just an interesting guy who's no longer with us. What did cancer take him down? Was yeah, that's that's the one. Cancer. That fucking cancer. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, Uh, I mean, that was one of the moving uh, things, like the Freddie Mercury AIDS tribute. Like they had that, you know, the Freddie Mercury memorial where they. I guess it was like an AIDS benefit of some kind. It was that. Do you remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, uh, Ronson was dying of cancer, and he and Bowie brought him out to play with him at that um, show. And it was like and they, you know, played Heroes and they played all the young dudes. Yeah. But um, and it's powerful because you, know, you can see that Ronson doesn't look well, but he's really playing. And yeah. you know, you know, there's obviously a lot of emotions. Well, let's let's yeah. you know. Do you want to play some of uh, you know the Mick Ronson style? And... Certainly. By the way, Keith has my uh, fuzz wah face down there on the floor, which is a mid-60s um, combination fuzz and wah-wah pedal made by the Dallas Arbiter Company yes. um, of England, but it was actually built in Italy, that mm-hmm. wah-wah pedal. It's a very desirable one because of the fucking inductor or whatever the fuck it is that these tone Nazis jack off over. Um Masturbating uh, I, Nazis. <laughs> That's what I've dumped them. I've dumped the tone Nazis. Yes. The guys that go on and on about you little bit of tailpiece is the best tailpiece yes. ever. And uh, so the Mick Ronson sound was a lot of uh, like a half open yes. wah-wah pedal, right? So he would, um, I, I think he used a Vox wah or whatever the hell it was, but it gives you a very nasal tone, right? You could turn up yeah. a little more than that if you want. Sure, I got it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's the. Uh, so yeah, if we're here. So we go about halfway about there. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, that's, that's a good snotty. approximation. There you go. So, um, with the Vesicle, um this one again, if we talk about David Bowie, um, his writing and his guitar playing, um, you're talking about a guy that, um, as far as I know, he's pretty much like 100% self-taught, you know, intuitive. Like he, a quote that he said is, "I've dissect, I dissected a sure dissected a lot of rock and roll songs," which certainly he did. Um, but like the Beatles, like he seems to be a guy that learned how to write music from just learning how to play a lot of songs and then just making stuff up. Right. And uh, I like that approach. Yeah. I'm a fan of that approach. It's, um, you know, learn, learn to play a bunch of songs by people you like and then go off on your own, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing about it that's interesting too, is that with the Beatles, cause the Beatles weren't schooled, but they learned like, um, like literally hundreds of songs and of every genre, and including Tin Pan Alley type songs, which means right. they really did learn how to play professionally composed, you know, musical songs. But what the Beatles would do is they would, there was, they would seem like they were always looking to put something in there that was like a little bit of a twist. Right. Even though probably a lot of times the chord progressions they were using, they'd come across in some kind of other song because, you know, there's always a way to work something odd into, into a music. But the Beatles' music kind of skews, like, if you learn the chord progressions and you know music theory, it's really a lot weirder than it sounds. Like, they put mm -hmm. things that, together that don't necessarily belong together, but they make it work. So to me, Bowie, he was listening to the Beatles, then he's also listening to Sid Barrett. And so he's like that, but then even one notch odder from there. Like, he, he even has, like, one, it, it's just one degree weirder. Yeah, um, so, I should point out, by yeah. the way, that Keith has uh, read a whole library of books about David Bowie. Oh, that's true. How many are you? Would you say you've read at this point? Seven, eight, uh, nine, ten, I, um, eleven, twelve? Well, I mean, if I really was, I'll go in, in order because I remember the first one that I had was in 1980. Um, there was a very, it was a pretty famous book called David Bowie: An Illustrated Record, and it was by Charles Shar Murray and some other, I think, NME person. Um, but what that was, was it came out when Scary Monsters was the latest in 1980 and it has every single release, which means, you know, British, but, um, all the albums, all the singles going back to his very start all the way up to Scary Monsters. So it tells the entire Bowie story, but just through, I mean, there's a long introduction, a very long introduction, but then it just tells his whole story through every single record he put out. And then, you know, great, you know, fantastic pictures and, of course, reproduced images from everything in all the records. So that was the first one I read when I was 12. When Let's Dance came out, there was a book called... Um, I, I, it wasn't called... It was the one that um, Tony Zanetta from the Warhol people... Maybe it was called Stardust or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that was the second one I read. That was um, Let's Dance era. Then Jerry Hopkins, who wrote The Elvis and uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive, Morrison book... He wrote one that I read, and then there was more recently, there was a, a Mark Spitz one, and then there was a Paul Trinka one, and then there was like one that's specifically about Bowie in Berlin, um, and, and, so that, and so that's like six off the top of my head, um, and yeah, I, I, but I, I think that there's at least a couple that I'm not quite remembering, but that might, it might be just be the six. That's a lot. That's, I mean, so... Yeah, uh, yeah. So you know what you're talking about. That's the point I was trying to make. Yeah, giving no, giving your you. bona fides, if yeah. you will. 
Uh, so where were we? You were going to do, talk about the width of a circle. Okay, yeah, width which of a circle. Which is, is that a Bowie, uh, is there a co-writer on that? or is he? No, um, Bowie very rarely, very rarely had um, co-writing credits. Um, Even if people did co-write with him? He would well, sort of... allegedly, again, because um, yeah. now another story that I've heard, and again, this is very allegedly, but this is like, I know a guy that knows a guy kind of thing. Like, but um, one of the things I heard was that like uh, Carlos Alomar, um, that Bowie didn't credit him, but that Bowie hooked him up. Like he, he like had a, he had put him up, you know, in some kind of, you know, Upper West Side apartment, like bought him an apartment or some shit like that. Oh, yeah. Like, like he, he bonused him really good. Right, right, but he right. Didn't, that's again, that's that's very allegedly. So, um, Alomar has a credit on uh, Fame, you know, with John Lennon, mm-hmm. but um, that's because he was there, and that was a stolen lick that Bowie said Alomar played that lick that we used for. I think Funky Broadway was the song. Like, it was some lick that they were using in a cover that they were right. doing. And, they, and Bowie was like, I need to... John Lennon is here. I must have a song I have written with John Lennon. <laughs> you know, that's how fame happened. Like, right, he, right, right. I don't know how much right. Lennon really, 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 really did on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he said, fame. Um, so, The Width yeah. of a Circle, what, oh, it, what album is that from, by the way? That is the first song from Man of the World. Okay. Um, someone online pointed out, and i got to admit that this sounds spot on, is that, um, you know, Bowie, of course, is one of the great, much like the Beatles and the Stones, one of the great thieves mm. of art. And um, someone pointed out that uh, the riff is a ripoff of Interstellar Overdrive by uh, Pink Floyd. You know mm. that song? Yes. Okay. So that song, Interstellar Overdrive, goes... I'm sorry. So now, uh, Width of a Circle, not exactly like that, but it's got the same descending vibe. It goes... So what he starts with here, you have the seventh fret, and it's just the open E string and the, and the, and the note of the A string. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There you go. See what you want when you get to here? So it's seven to five, four to two. That's it. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. there's your opening rip. What a thief. Yeah. And then, of course, when you listen to the record, you hear the, it comes, starts with the acoustic, mm-hmm. Bowie, and yeah. then um, Ronson comes in with the electric. Um, and the song, like when it gets into the main part of it, Ronson gets very Ronson. Mm-hmm. So he does this like... What fret do you want here? Seventh fret. And this is, again, talking about the uh, power chord thing. So you have this. Move up one, uh, two frets up. Seventh fret. Seventh fret. There you go. And then it's on the A and the Yeah. Yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But what he does is, so it, like that one riff, 
Then when he, when he sings, in the corner of the morning, in the past, sit and blame the master first to last. Let me, let me stop you for a minute, because sure. this is getting at the heart of why guys like Mick Jones and, and Steve Jones mm-hmm. love Bowie so much. I mean, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, this is very punk rock. In a way. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Okay. Yes. I just want to point that out mm, yo, to, it's, to it's, listeners. It's great to point out because we also should, you know, then recognize that it's possible. It's possible that we not, I don't know, we might not have ever heard of Iggy Pop or Lou Reed if it wasn't for David Bowie. He definitely popularized, I mean, for one, he res, there would have been no raw power. There would have been mm. no third Stooges album if it wasn't for David Bowie. Right. There would have been no Lou Reed Transformer, which is the second Lou Reed solo album. Like, yeah. Um, so if, if people, you know, I think fairly correctly say, you know, the Stooges is the first punk rock band and or with, along with the Velvet Underground, Bowie was the first, like, like dude that was like a big, you know, like a famous person that right. celebrated those but artists. But the guitar was definitely, I mean, at least for many, many years at the center of what he did. I mean, oh. it's very guitar driven music. I know I'm stating the obvious yeah. here. Well, actually, but, you though, know, there's there's two ways because the, his guitar-driven music was very guitar-driven. Yes. But, um, I mean, if you listen to Hunky Dory, I mean, Hunky Dory is actually more piano-dominated and more acoustic than Ziggy was, even though it's the same musicians. And there's some fine electric guitar on it, but there's not that many... Like, um, Queen Bitch is really the only really ripping, like, rock song on that record with really badass electric. You know, Song for Bob Dylan has some nice... Electric playing, By the way, I think my Wawa pedal's picking up a radio station. Do you hear that? Uh-huh. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. But, um, anyway. Yeah, but if you, if you listen to Ziggy, um, there, you know, there's an electric guitar all over it, but it really comes in and out because, I mean, and Ziggy also has, you know, a couple piano songs too, but um, it's really, like, very strategic. Like, you don't have this, like, electric guitar hammering you the whole time. Right. Or then if you even take the, um, the Ziggy version of Hang On To Yourself, which is one of his more punk rock type songs. Yeah. Um, the Ziggy version, it's very, the acoustic and the electric are really neck and neck for Sonics. So it's definitely like the voice, the sound of the triumphant Les Paul Marshall combo is, is strong. But it's actually very balanced out and embedded in a lot of, you know, acoustic. And, uh, and like I say, like it comes in and out. It doesn't just sit there... You know, cranking away the whole time. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, well, get back uh, to what you were playing then. Oh, Let's yeah, see. okay. Um, well, if we're talking about uh, with the Circle, um, after this initial part, then you have the A, when he sings, I would sit and blame the master first and last. And then he goes to all the roads with the G. I'm on the uh, low E string here. Low E string. Yeah, I mean, just making a power chord though. Yeah. And then he does something. Wait. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Now that was that that right there. This is one of those weird Bowie things because like. What he does here is he goes, this is like the first example where I said that he has chords that don't belong together. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're playing this rock song in E, and uh, without getting too mega 
theory about it. Like you have the E and the A, those obviously go together. Yeah. Um, and then when you're going to this G to A, you know, that's like an obvious, you know, kinks type of whatever, like, you know, stock thing. Mm-hmm. So what he does here is he goes from a G and then a C sharp minor with a G sharp at the bass. Yeah, so what you would do here, here's what you do. Move up one fret from here. Like you're saying you're on the G. Yeah. You move up one fret, and what you do is you move these fingers over to that chord, but you keep your finger on the low E string. Yeah. Yeah. And then to that, and then to the E. No, to the E, up to the E. Yeah. So the point is, now, however many times you listen to that song, this, those two chords don't go together, dude. <laughs> they yeah. Don't, they don't, yeah. But, yeah, but Bowie says they do. And then they do. Now and, they do. Yeah, and they do because, I mean, the singing makes it work, you know. Yeah. And the room is spread that I was aging fast. Like, the, you know, the vocals is what makes that work. Um, and then he's got that weird chorus, like a... He goes from a... This is weird, too, because it's, it's almost like, like a... It's so weird. Yeah. And then... That's an A? Yep. Yeah. What you could do after the A? I, um... Oh, oh, oh. It's just like a descending thing. And then if you actually listen to the record, like, like Ronson, what he's great about is that, um, well, we talked a little bit, if we go back to the idea of power chords, um, which were more recently invented at that time, it's because if you're playing with distortion like we are right now, so like, let's say if I play every note in the chord, like in a major chord, it's kind of like there's too many notes and the distortion creates overtones that it, things interfere with each other. Like there's too much, it's too much. Like it's, it's, it, gets, it gets busy, like it gets harmonically, it, it, it gets, um, you know, out of tune even mm. if you are in tune. So the idea is that if you have a, um, just the root in the fifth, or the root in the fifth the octave, few notes, because of the distortion, the distortion is providing overtones. So you could play less notes and it doesn't sound thin. And so you could play two notes or even just one note. So what Ronson does in a song on that song is he actually goes from this. Well, yeah, so what is it, instead of doing the descend down here from this to that, even though that's like what the change is, he goes. Yeah, and then, and then he plays the D. Um, I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry. Uh, F sharp minor. Let's have a conversation for a minute about effects order, because I'm okay. wondering if you change the, the order and put that distortion in front of uh, the wah, if it might eliminate the radio station lady. Okay. Um, or it might even actually make it worse. Who the I'll hell tell is, you the truth. Wh- how do you usually, when you have a wah and a distortion, how do you usually put them? Um, here's the thing is, um, 
this will go into my anti-pedal conversation. Mm. There is no reason to ever have a distortion pedal if you have an amp. Like, if you have, like, a, any kind of amp with distortion in it, which... So, if, say, I have my Vox AC30, or yeah. if I'm playing on a Marshall, or basically any amplifier you come across has more distortion built in than you ever will need. Right. So, a distortion... This plush, however, does not. No, that's, that does yeah. not. No, this needs a distortion. Right. So, I'm just saying that it's just a non-issue in my life. And, mm. um, basically, I've played with a wah... Um, on stage literally twice. And that was because I was playing with my friend Rich Faradin um, on this Bowie stuff. Right. And he peer pressured me into it. Yeah. Because he just was going, um, well, look, man, if you want the Ronson sound, that half one, I was just like, yeah, but I don't need it, the pedals. And then he's like, well, I'm going to bring one to practice anyway. Yeah. Like, just kind of like, well, I just brought it anyway. So, so then I wasn't going to, because I was like, no, don't worry, I'm not going to use it. He's like, I'm just going to bring it. And so I used it. I was like, all right, he's right, you know. Yeah. So I used it for the last couple of times. But the other thing for me is that it's still that if you listen to that, the nasal sound of what Ronson sounds like playing through a wah mm. and whatever fabulous year of Marshall amp he's using, it sounds nothing, nothing like what a wah-wah sounds like through any kind of thing you're going to plug it into these days um, or anything I've plugged it into. But... I found that for the lead tone, because another mm. thing is if you listen to the live recordings, yes. like you were saying, the Santa Monica Civic, you can just hear that thing go on. Right. And it's just like, and yeah. it, it's cool, but it's very, it doesn't necessarily sound as good as it sounds on the studio records. Like his right. tone is, is not as pure. Um, so anyway, uh, long story short, the answer is, um, I think that the, the point with the WAM may have been made that I don't need to keep it in, in any case. That's my... And yeah, just make sure the fuzz is turned off on the side anyway, too. Okey doke. Yeah. Um, if it was. So. Okay. Keith is now taking the wah out of the circuit, is what is yes, happening here. Yes, we've made our point. And he's just plugging into the Soviet big muff over here. Let's see how it sounds. Filthy commies. Now, do you see that all of a sudden the sound sound just sounds more present, like more like. Uh, it yeah. instantly sounds more in yeah. your face because yeah. that signal chain, man. That it's signal that chain. fucking inductor that those tone Nazis go through. Yeah, yes, yes. That's where it is. So, we were talking about the weird... And actually, it might be good to hit some other things because if we start going into the weirdness of this chord progression, yes. we'll end up talking more of the weird chords that I'll be trying to explain to you than um, the good, just playing. So maybe... Let's um, talk about some different songs. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Mark Spencer, who we both know from Facebook, uh, was going on the other day about the opening of Ziggy Stardust. You yes. know, And how he likes to use that during sound checks. And people always ask him to just keep playing it, you know. So mm -hmm. I, always, I was curious about, have you ever sat down and dissected you obviously have. I mean, that's a One dumb of, question. Uh, yeah, well, it's, so, it, this is this. How many Bowie songs do you know at this point? If you were to give it a number, at some you, point, yeah. If you're going first three albums, non-piano shit, yeah. At some point, all of them, yeah. And yeah. and it's, if you count guitar and bass, yes. Because um, there's a lot of stuff, especially like the later stuff when he was using guitar players that were really, you know, more, you know, outside of my. Uh, pay grade or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, like the Robert Fripps and stuff. Um, or even the Carlos Alomar, like some of the like, like the funkier stuff that's not my um, specialty. A lot of that stuff I knew how to play on bass that I never learned on guitar. But the Ronson stuff, yeah, every everything Ronson ever did at some point, I 
I definitely dip my toe in. But Ziggy Stardust is one of those one of the first things you learn songs because um, it's a great example of where David Bowie writes something that is very, you know, kind of basic. And Mick Ronson, as a great player, has a way of playing it that make, turns it into a thing. So, um, and a cool thing, too, is if, I don't know if you ever listened to any of the bonus tracks where you hear the Bowie demos. Yes. So if you ever heard the, do you ever hear the Bowie demo for Ziggy Stardust? I have. Yes. Yeah, it just sounds like a goofy little acoustic song. I mean, it's still a good song, but it yeah. doesn't have the, that riff, which is just chords. It, it doesn't, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't sound like a statement as such. So um, what this is, this ties in with the uh, Tie Your Mother Down conversation. Oh, ooh, okay. Because remember that we were talking about how we want to play a G like that. Yeah. So for this, this is another case where you don't want your second finger, like you don't want the A string. Mm-hmm. And you want your third finger on the third fret of the B string. Third finger on the third fret of the B string. It's the ne- next one. There it is. And then your pinky on the high E string. Yeah. And now, so this, so this sound. Yeah. Now you'll hear how even the way you just hit that is. Hey. <laughs> and then from there. Might be a dying battery in the Big Muff. Um, oh, my word. Or dirt in one of the volume pots. Let's work it out. It's dirt. I think we might we should probably put another battery in there. Okay. That's what we should do. We're gonna do a battery swap right here live, because I got a whole bag of batteries here to choose from. Um, because that sounds like a dying battery if you ask me. Yeah. And if it's not, I'll just give you my MXR distortion and I'll go directly into the amp. Hey man. Oh there it is. A hiding battery. Yeah, what a shitty design, huh? It's like a tin can. Yeah, yeah. Battery it doesn't have a little seat. It doesn't have a chair. No. no. They weren't thinking of your convenience. No, they, they were not. Um, so, I, those all should be good. I tested them recently. While we uh, swap out batteries here, let me tell you what you're listening to. This is an Aerial View uh, podcast. It's a Keith Hartel Guitar lesson. Hey, has I've been meaning to ask you, has anybody said, hey, I heard that guitar lesson you did with Chris, Chris D. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I get a little, I get some, I do get some feedback. I do get a little bit of feedback from a few people here and there, and it's very nice. Uh, okay. Very positive. It's been very positive. And uh, it's nice to know someone, you know, people are listening. That sounds better. And no, and I've gotten some very nice compliments. So again, we're doing this here. No. No, no, not there. You go. Okay, so third finger here. So, so now, now, like I was saying, this is going to go right into the um, the tire mother down thing. It's all Mm -hmm. the same chords. 
what you get is your third finger just stays on, on that string. It never comes off it for the mm -hmm. whole sequence. So he goes from the G. Then when you go to the D, your finger stays there. Just a D chord. Uh, what am I doing wrong? Right, and then this. So my second finger, I just put on the third fret of the A string, right? Yeah, and then, now what you have to make sure, your third finger should be touching the D string so that it gets muffled, so you get these three notes. Yeah, the D string should be muffled, so it's this one, this one, and this one. The third, th wait a minute. Third the D finger? string is muffled, right? See that D that, string. That string that should be muffled. Yes, yes. By which finger? The second finger. Oh, the second. See finger. now, if you look, you see how? Yeah. What you should see, like, if you look at, like, say. Oh, your finger's flat, kind of. Okay. But yeah, if you look at the look at the angle, like, it's it's very it's it's flatter. It's yeah. not flat total, but the trick is. That's muffled. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, but a lot of it has to do with how you, if you hit the strings right, like in other words, it's muffled, but if you hit them the right way, it really, you have no, it doesn't, it doesn't register that it's even, yeah, because I can still hear it a little bit. So one of the things that I say to students a lot, and uh, if you are my student, I say this to you, is that you want to remember like when you're learning chords, um, that the big battle when you're first learning chords is getting your fingers on their tips enough so you don't muffle strings that you don't want to muffle. So what you want to remember is that as easy as it is to muffle strings by accident, it's equally easy to muffle them like when you want to. Um, so basically to mute strings, um, you end up getting a technique that just has to do with total relaxation. Um, so if I go like this, like to play the G, like that finger's just flop very casual. But that's the thing too, is because we play the G like that, the string is muffling the A string. And then we move it over here. And then, so yeah, now this brings us to, um, at the risk of being overly ADD, that brings us to Watch That Man, which goes. So what I did there, and this will be a good thing to practice this for a second just to get the idea of it. What you want to really get is that the third, see how my third finger and pinky are living on these two strings? Third finger and pinky are living on these two strings. Yeah, the strings B and the G. Here. Yeah, that's very so important. So the B is this one. Nope, it's that one, yeah. yeah. I should learn the names of the strings. The I recommend it. So you're going. Yep. Yeah, and it's funny because the way that I learned those chords first was that the most, like, after learning bar chords, you know, the, then the most, the Jimi Hendrix of my generation was Bob Moult. Mm. And every Husker Du song, you know, is like... <laughs> playing These Important Years from Warehouse. This is not even a good Husker Du song, but what are you going to do? It's all right, it's a good song. 
Um, but so the thing is, now when you get these two notes, you notice you don't want that because that gives you that 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 density of notes that we were talking about that's undesirable for distortion. Because um, this is another thing I might have talked about last time is that if you have this A string muffled and you're playing the chord with your third finger on the B, your pinky on the high E, mm -hmm. every note you're playing, you're playing five strings. Every note is either G or D. There's only two notes being played. So you have G, D, G, D, G. Yeah. See, I recommend like when you're doing it, don't don't pluck the string that you're muffling because yeah. No. See, the A string should be muffled. And this is the A string. No, the A string is this one. Mm. Actually. All right. Let's do this. E. E. A. Yeah. G. Yeah. D? G. Wait a minute. E, A, D. Yeah. G, B, E. Yes. E, A. What's the mnemonic device? Eddie ate dynamite. Goodbye, Eddie. I learned that from the kids. The kids. The, little, the children. <laughs> I didn't learn that. When I, when I learned guitar, I didn't learn it that way. But that's Eddie the ate kids dynamite. Goodbye, goodbye, Eddie. I like yeah. it. All right. That but works for me. Since we're talking about that, that really begs... Holy shit. I feel like a moron. Well, but go ahead, keep going. It begs. It, well, this is what it, we should go into that, the knowing the strings a little more, because here's the thing: is that guitar, like, if you get the guitar is biased towards um, open chords. Yes. So in other words, E, A, D, G, and C, and you know, E minor, A minor, D minor, and then variations of those things. These are the chords that use open strings, and the guitar likes open strings better. They're louder, mm. and you don't have to press them down. So they sound fuller, and then people like, you know, say Pete Townsend, uh, ACDC, the exploitation of the open strings is mm. huge. I mean, obviously in country music or folk music, but also in rock. So one of the things that I like to think about is that if, when you start to know your chords, I think a big part of being, like, good, in the idea of good, you know, we've talked about this, like, knowing more versus knowing really what you, knowing really what you already can play, mm. really knowing it versus knowing more if you start to think about chords, okay, you know, you think about, you put your hand in a cluster and you hit all the strings. So you want to start to get the, to know the personality of each chord and their different notes and their relationships. So the way that I teach it is that you start with, the, every open string has its own chord associated with it. Um, so the first thing you should think about, now if you think of an E chord, that's mm -hmm. one of the probably maybe most obvious. Yeah. Now, so the thing is, is that if, to me, if I'm playing an E chord, the notes in the middle are not equal partners with this. Like, like the E strings, the E strings are more important. The open mm -hmm. strings are more important. So if I think of an E chord, I'm thinking of the sound of this, and then plus, you know, then the other notes plus. Yeah. Now, with an A chord, um, a lot of people, at least used to, and I, I do, regard the A chord as the most important guitar chord, the chord of rock, and there's something about the tonality, yeah. Now, see, I notice when you do that, if when you hit an A chord, you may or may not hit the A string, mm. and that, that's, that's, that's not advisable, because the A, the open A string, again, that sound, and then the sound of that with the string next to it, that's... That's the good stuff. I learned to play an A chord wrong. I mean, whenever I would play an A chord, I would do this. 
I wouldn't even have the A in it. That's, that's I'm an ignoramus. Guitar ignoramus. Well, then you're not gonna ever. Good. Yeah, because yeah. that's it. Because here's the thing about the A chord, though. Here's how important that goddamn A chord is. That shape. Yeah. Because um, if you've heard of the I, the fact that uh, Keith Richards likes to use what they call open G tuning, mm -hmm. and it's a five string tuning. All right. So notice if we play an A chord without playing the E string, we start from the A string. Yeah. And then again, see, you're not hitting the A string. That's, yeah. There you go. There it is. So with Keith, Keith Richards, the open G tuning is really an open A chord tuned down a whole step. Okay. Which means the open A chord is so important that the most rock and roll guy who plays guitar in the history of guitar, he just wants his whole guitar to be one big A chord all the time. That's that's the Rolling Stones, you know, that's, you know, whatever, you know, uh, brown sugar, start me up, like, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so you have the open A chord, and then when you go to the D chord, open D string D chord. See, again, see, you're hitting the strings that your fingers are on, and you're blowing off the open string. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, now another thing, too, is that... Another one I learned wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, if you I learn... I mean, the G you can't screw up, right? The G's got the G in it, right? Well, it's got, it's got, yeah. You, you, well, the thing is, is that because you're biased towards hitting the notes that your fingers are in. Right. So you say it's got the G in it. It's like, but yeah, well, they all have the Bill chord Bay in it. That's how Bill Bay taught me. Yeah. Well, um, here's, well, here's another funny thing, too, is that if you go that route or the way most people first learn or used to first learn, you say how the Beatles learned or however, right. or even how you teach people, the open chords are easier because you don't have to hold all the strings down. But if you came up in punk rock, you know, the, you just learn bar chords because you, you have the Ramones. You're like, oh, all I have to learn is those two shapes. Right. And I can play every song. And bar chords are much harder than open chords. So in my case, I know that I knew how to play bar chords. And open chords seemed more grown up and more like, oh, I you can play. I never played open chords. I mean, like the yeah. nihilistics or, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. An open chord was a rarity. Mm -hmm. It was a rarity. Mm. And it was only in first position. I mean, yeah. if you were. Yeah. If you yeah. were down here. Yeah. Yeah. That was about it. Otherwise, you were. Yeah. No, same thing with me. And I remember, because. Um, you know, when I was first in Pleased Youth, I wasn't playing guitar yet, really. I mean, I was starting to, you know, I'd played, I, I knew how to play bass to an extent, and I was starting to understand a little about guitar. But I remember, like, Paul Decker like, writing a song that had open chords and just being like, whoa, man, you're really, That's you're fancy. really sophisticated. Yeah, like, really you when you're open chords. Up in the game, because he went to see the Liars or something. Um, but anyway, um, that is, if you want to get to the, the key of, like, um, great sounding rock rhythm guitar because if we understand that the e a d g chords c you know but especially e a d and g even more than c how these are the most basic chords they're the first chord if i give someone a guitar lesson it's the first stuff you show them but the great if you think of the great rhythm players the you know the townsend you know the uh acdc you know the young brothers uh mick ronson those chords are still the ones that sound best if you're playing, you know, rock, basic stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's totally how you play it. It's not it's not that the chord is so great. It's it's how you hit it, and it's the, uh, a lot of the sensitivity, like I was saying, to the individual notes in the chord. Um, I mean, a big thing with an ACDC is just or Townsend too. Like Townsend, you'd have something like um, that E. It sounds really powerful. I'm just hitting two notes. But you have to have that, you know, the... 
attitude hood. Um, there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so now if we pull it back to, we'll pull it back into the, the Ziggy. So with these yeah, ones. Let's get the Ziggy. So for an exercise. Now you see the way my first finger is nowhere near the other strings? Yeah. So it, it's, that's a good habit for, for this because that way, if you're in the habit of pushing the string down, just try to let that finger just relax like and, and not do anything. And then... Would this be a C, by the way, if the finger is down? No, it would just be a G. But the difference is... See, no, this, I mean this note right here. Oh, that's a B. That's a B. Because the C is here. Okay. Yeah. So really what it is is that if you move from here... So you were doing... You were saying the finger... Keep the finger away from anything. Yeah. Yeah. The first finger. Yeah. Because that'll mess you up. Yeah. Yeah. And a little bit of it... Because this, this gets to be another thing is that with these chords... I mean, if you start to realize, like, when you're trying to have muffled strings on purpose. All right, here, we're going to do this. You take my MXR Distortion Plus, Thank and I'm going to plug directly into my orange amp, because fuck that big muff. Being a pain in my nutsack. All right. And the MXR, this is the ultimate, man. Van Halen, dude. Alright. I mean, I don't need a distortion pedal. Listen to that. It's, it's... See? Told you. Oh, Holy moly! Alright, much better. Here we go. We're back, okay. baby. Um, all right. So what I was starting to say is when you get into the thing of, of the art of muffling the strings, what you find is just that your, your hand can become very, very relaxed. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you have to do, you get specific, like, you know, you get it very repeatable. Let's be clear, by the way, Keith is referring to uh, muffling with your left, you know, if you're a le- right-handed guitarist, your fretting hand, mm-hmm. not your, not your uh, strumming hand. Because there's, a, you know, all kinds of muting that you can do with your... Oh, with yes. your strumming hand as well, mm-hmm. right? Palm Absolutely. mutes and all kinds of mutes. But you're yeah. talking about you know muting with your fretting hand. Yeah, and if I was so. really gonna, I mean, muting, I guess is a is a word because I mean, really, like if you're talking about right hand stuff, you're talking about you're talking about muffling it where you'll where you'll hear the tone, but it's muffled, right? And or yeah, and muted. It's almost like that pedal on the piano that cuts off the sustain. Exactly. Yeah, That's exactly what it's like. Exactly. Yes. Um, so yeah, with the left hand, what it is is that what you learn um, the hard way when you're first learning guitar is that if one of your fingers is even a tiny, just barely touching a string, the string gets muffled. Right. So the good news is that when you want to muffle the strings, it's just, it's, that's still true. Like if your finger is just barely touching it, so it's easy to build kind of relaxed habits. And um, a thing I've said before is that the challenge of the electric guitar, if you're playing it correctly, is really trying to get the thing to not make noises that you don't want. Like, it's, like if you're playing acoustic guitar, you have to fight to get all the sounds you want out of it. You have to fight for every sound that comes yeah. out. On the electric guitar, it's more, this thing is ready to go, man. Like, you just plug it in and it's making noise. you got to control it. So it's really more about... Um, it's, it's about how you handle it and kind of keep things from 
making noise that you don't want to make noise. So, um, getting back to this thing of the G chord. Yeah. If you get, if you get the habit of um, playing the chord that way, your second finger is going to feel very relaxed. Like you don't, it doesn't really feel like any work. Like you don't have to get on the finger tippy tippies, you know. So then if you go from this, and this is something we hit with tie your mother down, then practice going from that to the D without moving your third finger. So doing what? Go to the D without moving that finger. Now again, that habit, get that habit of the... Now, um, let's do this. Let's go. The uh, magic of Ziggy yeah. is this. Yeah. Now, the way that Ronson makes that so good is he actually plays it more like... So what it does is that after he um, hits the chord, right. what he does is like when he this note, yeah. yeah. So what he does is when he he lets the other strings ring out, so you get like you see how like yeah. Now, you hear the difference is that because once you're doing this, you only hit the chord once. And I'm having a little... There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yes. Yeah, now you see how you're trying to pick every time down? It's hard. But if you go like that, it's easier. Like the down... Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then for this, then after that, he just moves his second finger to the A string. Yeah. And then he plays a pattern where he's picking this. So what I'm doing is from the A string, B string, G strings, you got... First thing, here's um, on, on that kind of a picking pattern, mm -hmm. um, a good rule of thumb is always move your hand, the pick, always move your pick in the direction the string is. So in other words, if I'm picking down from the A string and I want them to the B string, two downstrokes because they're both in one motion. See, see how you're, yeah, you want to go down, down, so then you get this. It's like down, down, up, up, down, down, down. Strings are you playing? It's the A string, the B string, and the G string. You want down, down, up, up, down, down. I'm 
not getting this. Um, well, think of it this way. It's like it's an outside pattern. There's, we have three strings involved, right? Right. So it, it's bottom to top. Like you got bottom, top. That's, That's it. Now to make it complete, like one iteration of that would be. Damn middle pickup. Like he, he's doing the same strings in the same order every time because it's always A B G. So you got A B G A B G A B. I mean, he breaks up the pattern, but that's the order A B G A B G A B G. Yeah, see, see, that's the thing about when you use these two downstrokes. That it makes that reflexive down up. This string's not. You don't want the D string. You just want the. Yeah. yeah. Um, so after that, then you. So you notice these two notes on the G string and B string. They stay the same through the whole sequence. And um, I'm not getting this. I gotta break this down a little bit more Sweetly. just because it's it's uh, it's I'm flummoxed by the whole idea uh, let me try yeah okay so we're here uh, no yeah no, that's right See, the one thing that you're, you're saying when my hand is coming back up, like towards the low E string, yeah. that should be an upstroke, basically. This, it, yeah. Picking the direction that your hand is moving. Is that what yeah, because you think about it this way, is like, is like um, all of guitar technique, you know, all of any kind of technique of anything, really. But all of guitar technique is always you want to do less work, you want to make it easier. Like the less yeah. work you're doing, the easier it is, the better you'll play. So the thing is that with the pick, um, you know, the pick is either going up or coming down, so you want to you get more bang for your buck. You know, so I wouldn't want to go up down if I can go, if, if down down is the direct route. You know, shortest, you know, straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Yeah. So I want to go down down because the this this is in the same direction as down. Why would I want to come up because it's, it's down? And then what happens is that and that's how you get to the G string is because once you go down down up. That becomes easy because those strings are next to each other. Uh, show me again. Sure. Uh, let's so this is right. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Are you fretting anything else? You're fretting the high E as well. Here's the thing: is yeah. that my pinky might or might not be resting on the high E, but it doesn't matter. It's not playing. Because yeah, because we're only playing the three strings.
little bit. What you're doing is you're having a tendency to jump over the G and hit the D, and yeah. you want to get that one. Is that anywhere near it? Is that's that, the notes, okay. yeah, that's the notes. All right, but are you doing this or are you doing that? Well, it's, I'm going down, down, down. I mean, a little bit what you'll notice, it's, it's simple, it's just that um, if you haven't worked on, like, well, the, the word uh, arpeggio, have we used that word ever before yet? Uh, you may have, I don't recall. Arpeggio means very simply that you're playing the notes from a chord in sequence instead of at the same time, instead of simultaneously. So, that, so if you haven't practiced this kind of stuff, where you're picking out the individual notes from a chord, your hand won't consistently go to the same strings until you train it to. So, now the other thing is too is it sounds like your G string is getting muffled by your third finger and that's, yeah, yeah, it should be nice and ringy. Yeah, yeah much better, much better. After that, move to. And you're using the first finger? Yeah, switching from the third fret to the second fret, second finger to first finger. Yes. Same pattern. Walk back down to the uh, G chord. So after this, open A string, and then still keeping your third finger and playing those same two strings. Same order. It's uh, A B G. So now. To um, go away from the picking for a second, the the motion goes from the G to the D, C, descend, descend. So it's uh, to the D. This. Again, you want the habit of keep your third finger down the whole time. There's no reason for it to ever move during this because you need it on every single chord that you play okay, during so the intro. No first finger? No first finger? No first finger. Thank you. There you go. Oh, which chord are you? Oh, that, that. Now first finger. Huh? What? I'm switching from the... Second finger? Yeah. Think about... Here's another way to look at it. Like, what you think about is... And then open. Open. Yeah. 
So like, look at it this way. If we take away the top notes and just do the bass, because what you think, it's really a chord progression where you have a descending bass built into the guitar part. On the E string. Uh, on, no, the A string the A walking string. down to the E string. But th So if we take out the chord and we just have the descending bass, you end up with this. Yeah. Like, you go this to this, and then... Yeah. Yeah. Now, change that to... So here, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. How come, uh, again, I, I'm having independent finger control issues? Because if I try to lift this second finger, mm -hmm. my brain is not really lifting it when I want it to lift. So if I'm doing... Yeah. Yeah. There it is, there it is. Yeah, so you notice that once you have the chords, the chords are very easy, and like you see how much harder it was to get your right hand to operate on that than your left hand? Yeah. Okay, now in my experience as a guitar teacher, in your experience as a guitar player, what do you think people think they need to worry about more when they play guitar? Uh, left well, hand or right? Well, fretting hand, you know. And they're so fucking wrong. They're yeah. fucking wrong, 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 wrong. Really? Wrong, wrong. That's the whole reason why, why Keith Richards is thought to be a good guitar player or a yes. great guitar player. It's all right hand. Pete Townsend, right hand. None of those guys, like the great guitar that, or rock and roll guitar that we like yes. or love, Yes. Anything that they're playing chords, if it's great, it has nothing to do with their left hand. I mean, you need your basic, you know, your basic functioning. That's, I mean, on the face of it, that sounds ludicrous. No. Because you would think yeah. that the chord shapes that you're forming hmm. are what's important to the song that you're trying to play. And mm -hmm. you're saying no I'm not. That? I'm saying it because here's why. There's a solid reason why. Rhythm is more important than melody. Because... You can have rhythm without melody. You can have music without notes. You can have rhythm without melody. You can't have melody without rhythm. If so, like rhythm is is rhythm is it. Rhythm is what you feel. Like melody is what you hear. Like rhythm is like rhythm is the whole enchilada. Okay. And then the other thing is, like in the case of um, you know Keith Richards, if you listen to those Stones records, or you could even say the same thing about Johnny Ramone, it's like, well, why do they not sound like everyone else if they're playing the same chords? It's how they're playing them. Well, what's the difference how they're playing them? The difference is always in the right hand. Okay. Because the left hand just, you know, it stays on its... I mean, that's a slight oversimplification, but not totally because... Um, and then the other thing is it's with the right hand, like that's going back to this idea of remembering that the chords are made up of individual notes. So, like, one of the theories that I have, this is like kind of a, a thing, is like if you listen to... And someone obviously great like Jimi Hendrix, and you listen to his chords. Now you really hear the individual voices of the notes in his chords. But if you listen to Johnny Ramone, listen to those chords, what that sounds like, and compare it to something like Green Day. And you can hear each note in the chord of Johnny Ramone in a way you can't with, you know, what came after the. Um, and my theory is just that a Johnny Ramone. He's hearing all the notes in the chords he's playing. And there's something about that thing that's in your mind, you know, because in the creative process, you know, per, in a perfect world, what's happening is that you have a thing in your head you're expressing, and your hands are just tools to make the thing in your head come out. So whatever you're hearing in your head, 
that's what's going to come out. So a lot of it is kind of training yourself to hear the notes and then you get your hands sensitive to finding the notes that you're hearing. Right. So, and that's, that's like, you know, um, hear it to play it instead of play it to hear it. That's, that's one way of uh -huh. doing that. Okay. Um, but now just to, to change things up a bit, um, if we go into the verse a little bit, a neat thing is that you have the, so Ziggy played guitar, the first line. You know, what, yeah, what happens is, like, on, on Ziggy, the arrangement is Bowie's, like, strumming the acoustic, chugging along. Mm -hmm. And then the electric is kind of casual, like on the verses. It just will hit the... Then you have a B minor. And then the cool part you have is this. Now, check this out. What that is, what he does there is him and the bass player double each other. Okay. This is a thing where you don't know. Like, this could be a thing be, where I would have, a, I would say it's a reasonable theory that Trevor Boulder might have came up with that line because it's a bass part. Mm. And it sounds like a typical thing he would play. Um, but that Mick Ronson would have heard and said, like, oh, make that a thing and I'll double that. So that's a cool, that, that when we were saying before about when you have distortion, how you can play single notes or chords. So he goes chord. Chord, no, 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 no. So yeah, so. Yeah, what I would recommend there is slide the third finger up. Yeah, because you're gonna go. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other thing you could do is when you, when you land on this, you can land with your second finger so that you can... You know, you could go straight to a G chord there. By the way, um, you oh, like to, I see what you're yeah. saying. Land here, or if you're set, yeah, so you can go back into the. Then, if you were playing, um, you know, "Stop the Rain" by Credence. You know, that's like a regular. It's a major pentatonic right. lick. It's stock. Um, anyway, but that's pure. That's pure bass line there. That's those are bass player thoughts. Right. That those two things, and then from there he goes to the E minor. Then you have the all-important A chord, most important chord of rock, became the special man. Remember, please, please remember my admonishment to emphasize the open A string. Yes. And then from there to a C. And then back to the G. Repeats it again. This G is again without this, without yes. he, this here. For the most so. part, in general, unless you're playing Neil Young. Right. That's how you always out. play a G if you have distortion. That's a G of, G of rock, yeah. The B minor. C note. Yeah. And then he, another thing that Roger does here is he'll go. Yeah, because these notes. Or it's these two, I guess. Yeah, here we go. 
Yeah, because those notes are the same notes as the open E minor chord. So he sprinkles them sometimes instead of playing the actual chord. Okay. And then we're back to the A again. The all important. Yes, triumphant to the C. And now we go into the chorus, which goes. Power chord style here, fifth fret, fifth A string, fret, A string. Yep, yeah, power chord. Again, yeah, and it goes from that back into the. One of the great hilarities is in the Ziggy movie. Um, they open up with Hang On to Yourself, and Ronson takes some crazy solos. And then the second song, the second song is Ziggy Stardust, and he plays this. And you know, Les Pauls are famous that the G string is never in tune. Yeah. And it's the most, like, so out of tune, like, yeah. just horrendously out of tune. And then Ronson just tunes it. And then he plays a song, but like, you know, old school, like yeah. no, no snarks, no electric tuners. Um, How did they do it? Oh, my God. Well, that's the, um, that's the question. If you're listening to the album of Ziggy, after Ziggy, immediately happens uh, Suffragette City. Mm -hmm. Suffragette City. Um, that's Now, there's one of your kind of um, punk rock uh, predecessor type tunes. Oh, no doubt. Which is a nice cross between the Velvet Underground and like uh, back in the USSR. You know, Bowie being the thief. Mm. There's a lot of back in the USSR in there, a lot of Velvet Underground in there. Um, but it's pure, pure, pure Bowie. Bowie and his most Bowie-like. So you start with that... <laughs> Now, uh, where are you? It's so from the uh, it's sliding. Yeah, yeah. Now again, like like if you think about this this intro, like that intro of Suffragette City, that's definitely it's one of the all time classic intros, and it's just because of how Ronson plays it. So you got that. Yeah, there's a. Now, the important thing is, like, see how you're mixing um, up and down strokes? Yeah. On this, down, all, you know, again, another one of the things that's punk rock about it, yeah. Yeah. Now, another thing you can notice is, like, you see how you're stopping there when you go. But the way it's got to be to get the right flavor to it. Yeah. Is what he does is, like, listen to this, the subtle difference. You 
here I get that in yeah. there. So what you do is, your right hand doesn't stop. Your left hand relaxes and it creates that muffle and that's what keeps the pulse in, in, the, in the cool way. Like that's so what makes it So you're not cool. doing the rhythm with your right hand, you're not. Look at it. And here's the thing. If you stop, if you stop your right hand to do that, you, you will never be able to keep the groove because what it is, um, the analogy that I use, this is for thinking about rhythm, rhythm guitar playing. Yes. I mean, rhythm in general. Every body function is rhythmic. Like if you walk, you walk in a rhythm, you know, your heart beats, your breathing, you know, every, everything you do, um, chewing, you know, like, mm. like, you, but if you know, walking is a great basic example. It's like, you know, you walk, you watch any person walk. It's a rhythm. Even if it's got a fucked up leg and it's a crooked rhythm, it's still a rhythm. Right, like, right, right. So the thing is that when you're playing guitar, rhythm guitar, what you, everything is about training your arm. Like the motor of your arm has to work like with this flow so that what ends up happening is that the way that rhythm is created as far as like switching it up is going to be either whether you hit the strings or not. It's like if, you know, to change up real quick, like if you know, like this basic... Like that's a, now you'll see that my arm, even though I'm missing the string, sometimes my arm always moves at the same time. Mm. But that's why you get down, down, up, up, down, up, down, down, up, up, down, up, instead of down. You know what I mean? Like because if you stop and start, you won't have flow. Um, how do I unlearn what I learned a long time ago about the way I, you know? Well, let's talk about because. What you're doing right there, there's nothing, there's no reason why you'd want to unlearn that because what you're doing is you're playing down and up strokes continuously. So the thing is, you don't have to unlearn that. You just don't want to use it if you're playing a song that's not that. So, right. um, so what, what is this? This is Suffragette City we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Suffragette so. City. It's, this is, comes in an area where it's almost hard to describe because all I know is that if you're really trying to get the rhythm right, you can't stop. You know what I mean? Like, like, so the first thing is just that it's all downstrokes. See, all, all downstrokes. Let me, let me do it without yeah. the uh, pinky first. Sure. See if I got it right. Yeah. See, that's the, the things I got to unlearn because when I'm doing this, I'm... I'm doing up and down strokes, so yeah. But again, I want to remind you: don't you, you don't want to unlearn it because you there's that there's it's not wrong. It's just not Suffer right City. Song. Yeah, it's the perfect song. One of the things that you'll notice is that like if if you watch like me play that, you see how much more. I mean, my wrist is loose. Yeah. But it's more coming. Forearm. It's more forearm, so that. Yeah, there's a little bounce coming from, from forearm, and it's it's small because I'm only playing two strings. But if I was trying to do that all with my wrist, like just all all wrist, it doesn't really happen. Like like the arm gets involved. Yeah. is something I would have to work at to get good at, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like, like everything else. Of course. Of course. Um, but the, <sighs> the, basically, the, the song, very simple. Um, mm -hmm. A. 
Or actually, he, this is a little bit, a little bit of a variation, because he's going from A at the first fret to the F, 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 G. Now notice that these are the same chords that we played in Ziggy. Same chords, different order. Mm. So you got... Wait, now listen to the variation, because he does it twice. It's this way every verse. The first time it's... Second time. And then it goes to... First one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. My school days insane. And I work down the drain. Okay, now we're up to the chorus and okay. Yeah, eighth fret, seven, eight. Yep. has a neat little solo. It's like, um... So what he's doing is you have a second fret, and then you're bending this note. Um, did we do this? Yeah, so if you're holding, this finger stays, and this note. Yeah. And then you got. Yeah. So here, second finger and third finger, at the fifth fret, G string and B string. The, uh, 
Now here's the thing to notice about that that's worth pointing out, is that the chord progression you're playing over is the A, F, G. Now this note here, that's a note that's in an A chord, a C sharp, right? Yeah. Now here, when you have this, that's actually an F chord. But he only plays these two notes, and this is a G chord. So what he's doing is, he's just playing, like all that whole section, he's only playing notes that are in the chords that he's playing over, which is, as we covered before, yeah. Yeah, so if you played over, like, if, so if you play the first thing, I'll play the A, right? So over the A, you're this. Right, now you go. Yeah. Yeah, then this again. And you're playing it like... Yeah. 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 And then... He's got that... And you need that slide. Yeah. Or else you ain't Ronson. <laughs> um, but this, it's cool because there's so much... I mean, it's not complicated what he's playing, but it's very loaded with attitude you know? right well I'm not going to tackle that today that's a, okay a, it's a little it's a bridge a little too far I mean because we're at, we're at uh, about an hour and a half at this point so maybe we should pick it up there for the next one okay that sounds like a plan because not only is all the uh, potentiometers in this room full of dirt but I think uh, I think the missus is home, and she's probably up there wishing I would stop. At this yeah, point. yeah, yeah. Because it's loud rock and roll. Um, but uh, what else can we say before we wrap up that we, um, you know, because obviously David Bowie dying at the age of 69 just seems like a cheat. It's like you ever get the feeling you've been, do you feel cheated? Mm. Or do you think you got everything out of the, you know, I his think, existence on this planet. I think he his, the that, timing was so good for him. Yeah. That it, for one thing, here here's the thing. I was reading an um, old interview with him yesterday, and uh, he said um, this was an interview he did in I think '98, and it was about art for New York Times when he did an art exhibit. And he goes like, when I hit 40, he's like right on the nose. I had a midlife crisis. Nothing worked for me musically. Now, if he says that. I mean, that was 87. That would have been when he was doing that album, Never Let Me Down, which was his second attempt to, he failed attempt to recreate the commercial success of Let's Dance. Yes. Because he made two commercial records after that that failed. And then the Tin Machine thing seemed a little searching um, to people. It wasn't certainly a bullseye. Was that the, uh, the Sales Brothers? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, so when he's saying that right when I turned 40, I, I had a midlife crisis and nothing worked for me, it sounds very psychological. I mean, besides the fact of, you know, that it happens right the moment he turns actually literally 40. So look at it when he died, 69, not 70. Like 60, once you're in your 60s, you're old. <laughs> but when you're getting into your 70s, you're getting elderly. Right. So, you know, to me, it's in its Lemmy, I think the same thing. It's I think it's very similar to Lemmy, where it's kind of like if those guys got much older, like, you know, there's some people maybe weren't meant to be like really old. And um with Bowie at 69, you know. Um, Take a picture of me. I will. For the, for the uh, newsletter. Just, I'm going to try to switch it up a bit. Oh, oh that's nice. Do you need more light? And while you're taking a picture yeah. of me with this guitar, I, I should tell you, 
Um, by the way, can you get all of it in if I do it like that? Sure. It's knocking up against my microphone, but who cares? Yeah, okay. All right, you got it? Yeah. Um, I submitted the serial number to Gibson for this guitar because what I've discovered about this guitar, and then we'll get back to that because I was interested yeah. in what you were saying, is that, uh, you know, the history of the Les Paul, right, which is that uh, the Les Paul came out in, what, 1952, 53, I think, mm-hmm. and, you know, until 1960. Uh, it had the body shape that we're all familiar with. And then, for whatever reason, Gibson said, fuck you to Les Paul and decided yeah. to create the body shape that we all know and love as the SG. But initially, it wasn't an SG. It was just called a Les Paul. Mm-hmm. So this guitar, uh, because they ha- they kept that body shape until 1967, and then in 68, they reintroduced the Les Paul that we all know and love. You right. know, The single cutaway guitar. And this is a 1968 Les Paul. So the thing about that year of production is that the, a lot of conversation about did they use leftover bodies from the 1950s. They very well might have. I have de- determined that this is one of the earliest 1968 Les Pauls. So mm. it's a fairly rare guitar in yeah. terms of its combination of features. And the other day I said, you know, I was looking on the Internet and I realized Gibson will still do serial number research if you send them a serial number so i got a very nice email back from the gibson people who said they are going to research this serial number and they are going to get back to me and let me know when this guitar was actually manufactured um by the way i you know when i put in these spurzels i think i pretty much butchered this yeah (laughs) as you could tell but yeah um this and the original parts are pretty much missing from this guitar because who knew? I didn't know it was a 1968 when I got it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've told the story many times about how I acquired this guitar, but if I had known back then that it was a 1968 Les Paul, I would have been more careful with the original parts because they go for a bucket load nowadays yeah. online. And uh, I think I would have probably not painted it, but hell, you know, yeah. I like the paint job. Beneath this is a destroyed gold top, as you probably know. But anyway, that's that's the update. Yeah. Let's get back to, to David Bowie, and then we'll wrap up, and we'll say goodbye to everybody because um, we talked about Mick Ronson. You mentioned Carlos Alomar. Um, Reeves Gabriel, was that another one of his? Reeves Gabriel. Reeves Gabrels, I guess is how you say his name. Oh, yeah. Reeves okay. He was basically the Bowie's uh, 90s guitar player. Okay. Which, I mean, you know, if you get to play with David Bowie, man, that's fucking great. But I sometimes wonder if it's weird to be the guy that played with David Bowie when no one liked him. Right. You know, because yeah. no one, no one, none of those records, I, I thought Earthling was a really good album. But, like, basically, you know, he was, yeah, he was definitely fishing, like, in the 90s. Yeah. Kind of lost his way a bit. Yeah. And, and the thing the thing was, too, is because I, I was thinking about this, because with, with, with Reeves, he had the two Tin Machine records, and then... He, I, I think they have their charm, but I don't think the songs were that great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Bowie made that album, Black Tie, White Noise, which was that was a Niles Rogers produced record. I don't know if I even heard of that record. Oh my god! It was fairly under the radar. It was mm-hmm. definitely it definitely didn't get any kind of splash. And keep in mind, his stock was low because of the tin you know Tin Machine era. Like people were not you know following him. So it seemed like the that one was a kind of a low key attempt to make something kind of commercial. And it had a couple, like he covers I Feel Free on there mm-hmm. and, uh, and a Morrissey song, I Know What's Gonna Happen Someday. Mm-hmm. And Ronson plays on the Morrissey song and Ronson had produced the original version of the Morrissey song. Okay. But that was the uh, I'm letting Mick Ronson play because he's going to die soon record. <laughs> but I mean, he only plays on a couple songs, but he has them on the record. But it's, it's listenable. Um, 
So then after that, there was Outside, on which um, Mike Garson, the piano player, and Carlos Alomar. Carlos Alomar, I think, only came back for the tour, not the record, I think. But uh, that was another Reeves Gabrels thing, but that was the artsy-fartsy Nine Inch Nails style record. Yeah. And I was going to get into yeah. uh, that for a second, too, uh, the Nine Inch Nails guy. Uh, yeah. What the hell was his name? Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor, yes, that's the guy. Yeah, he toured with Trent Reznor, did he not? Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. really... See, that. that's... I mean, that was when he started to kind of... Started to... People started to say, okay, Bowie's back in the game, because the outside as a record, like, it wasn't a huge record, but it was, like, very... You know, it was uh, Brian, him and Brian Eno and Tony Visconti, I believe, produced it. So he got the old team back together and tried to make an artsy-fartsy weirdo record mm-hmm. that really kept up with, um, you know, he tried to incorporate the Nine Inch Nails cutting edge of modern rock at the time. Mm-hmm. But at this, it's kind of when he started to be more the guy that was following than leading. Because when he was making, say, Lower Heroes and he's listening to Krautrock, like, he's, like, listening to obscure stuff mm-hmm. and bringing it to the mainstream, stuff people don't know about. But in the case of Outside, when he's trying to incorporate Nine Inch Nails, you know, people already, that, you know, people already heard that. But still, that was decent. But the album Earthling he made after that band toured, and that was the one Reeves Gabrell's era, I thought, really triumphant, like, you know, winner record. And that record has some of those, what they called at the time, the drum and bass feats. Okay. That boom, boom, boom. You know, overly fast drum machine music, but it had its charm. But then after that album, he made a record called Hours. And that was when he first said, okay, we're going to try to make an old-style David Bowie record that has songs and the old kind of regular playing. And that record was... It's definitely one of his most critically panned, and no one seemed to like very much. And personally, you can hear that the inspiration's not... Sounds like it to me. It's like a shadow of David Bowie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And then what happened... So that was late 90s, maybe 98 or something. In 2001, when Hero... um, When uh, Heathen came out, that was like, oh, this really sounds like a believable classic. Like what he tried to do on Hours, like that's what he, I think he nailed on Heathen, which is it really sounded like a good David Bowie record. And then that one, two years later, the album Reality. And then 10 years after that, I guess two years ago, the next day, mm-hmm. those three to me all sound like solid David Bowie records, but they sound like he's trying to sound like David Bowie. And then so last Friday, when I heard... Um, the new one, Black, um, Black Star. Star. Yeah, uh, as soon as I heard it, I was like, this is it. He's, he's back. Like, this is the Bowie of Scary Monsters. Right. This is pre-Let's Dance Bowie. And, like, I had not thought that he sounded more unself-conscious and, you know, searching, you know, experimenting than he had. I, I mean, it, I, you could only make the conclusion that, you know, he was freed somehow by his prognosis. I mean, he knew he was... Not going to be around much longer, and he just kind of, you know, yeah. freed him up. I mean, I, I again, at the risk of sounding obvious, I wonder if that's it. Um, and I, I, you know, I've started listening to that album. I'm about three tracks into it, and yeah. I'm really fascinated by it. I think it's a great record. Yeah. And I, I appreciate what you said, where you said, hey, I'm glad that this, you know, came out while he was still with us, so we weren't judging it through the lens of, he's dead and it's great. He did it that you know, on purpose, because, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously sure anticipated... <laughs> Everything it's like you know that's the great thing about an artist like David Bowie is he yeah. sort of is ahead of your curve. He's way ahead of your curve. Yeah, right. Uh, we missed somebody, didn't we? Didn't he work with Earl Slick for quite a bit? Oh, of course. I mean, of course. Yeah, well, okay. Earl Slick goes from he's in and out a bit, but like Earl Slick came on the tour for Young Americans. He's on the album David Live. He's on Station to Station, 
And then he um, he toured on Let's Dance because remember Stevie Ray Vaughan played on Let's Dance. Mm-hmm. Talk about now. Talk about Bowie. The last time before Black Star that Bowie was ahead of the curve. Right. Let's Dance. Like yeah. Oh, who's my new guitar player? Oh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, did he put out any records yet? No. Mm-hmm. Like come on, man. Yeah. Like that's a, some fucking vision there. Um, and then Stevie Ray, if you know the story, um, Stevie Ray was supposed to be on the Let's Dance tour and he dropped out like something like three days before or something. Mm-hmm. There's rehearsal recordings. So Earl Slick was brought back in last minute for that and, you know, delivered the goods. And then Earl Slick didn't play with him again until I think the last, um, like he was on the next day, I think, and maybe Reality and Heathen too, but definitely the next day. Uh, yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure all those three, because Visconti was back too. Like, again, he started going back to his old dudes, but... Um, uh, but one thing about, as far as Black Star, the uh, whole the timing thing and the pressure of the death and how it might have freedom in right, some right, way, right. is like if you think about Let's Dance, because Let's Dance, what happened was like he was having money problems because of his bad management contract, um, and his contract was over with RCA, and Scary Monsters was his last record with RCA. So at the time, between Scary Monsters and Let's Dance was the longest he'd ever gone without making a record, which was like I guess three years or something, maybe four. I think, I guess Let's Dance came out in 83, so that'd be three years. Um, when he signed the contract with EMI, it was, I don't remember what the numbers was, but it was big enough that at that time, it was big news, just the contract. Like, mm. it was big money. And he comes out with this record that's commercial on a level he never was before, and it's just right over, like, just, like, home run. Like, right over the plate. Like, yeah, it's yeah, just... Yeah. A, cl- a sure I, wasn't fire. Wasn't it a number one song, Let's Dance? I mean, I, Let's Dance might have been because I know that the new album is his first number one album ever. Yeah. But Let's Dance very well might have been a number one song. I don't yeah, know. I think it was, as a single, it was, you know, went to the top. But if you most. think about being that, under that kind of pressure and just being like, oh, this would be a good time to make the most commercial record I ever made. So, and the thing is, I think it threw him because, like, that's why I think for 10 years, you know, or almost 10 years, like through the rest of the 90s, he never had that, like, he lost the knack, like, to just be right on the money. And again, really, I think he lost that knack for it until this last record. But, and that's not really a criticism because no one, no one, no one has been consistent, you know. Mm. I mean, unless you talk about someone like Frank Zappa, who's so weird that he's not playing the, that game. Right. But, yeah, you don't, you don't get that kind of consistency from any Rolling Stones or any Beatles is, you know, I mean, because you have to include what they did after the Beatles. Yeah. So No, it was interesting, too, because somebody else made the comparison between Lemmy and David Bowie and said, you know, here was one guy who was consistently innovating and always trying something new and always, you know, um, working that sort of side of the street. And then there's Lemmy, who just essentially wanted to give you the same experience over and over again because, yeah. you know, you he knew you liked it and... You know, uh, I forget what the hell their point was. You know, well, they were both sixty nine when they died. I think, right? I mean, they both. I believe. Died. Well, let me wasn't let me seventy. Seventy. Okay. I think, yeah. I think let me was seventy on the news. Uh, yeah, but they were but sort yeah, of yeah, same age. That's what yeah, they were sort of contemporaries of each other, and you know, I I know the point. The point was they were both great. Yeah. That was the point. yeah. They were both even though one person was just sort of like this changeling, as we know of yeah. Bowie, and the other person was sort of like the Lemmy you first met was the Lemmy you knew when he died basically yeah you know and there's something to be said for both approaches there's something to be said for the solid consistency of you know give me the rock and roll that i want and then let's try something different with this next record you know well the thing i would add to that too is that i think in both cases both of those guys i don't think had a choice Mm. bowie couldn't stay 
he couldn't, I mean, you know, another thing that you'll read about him now, which makes sense is like, okay, well, he might've had symptoms of what now is called ADD. And there's a lot of evidence for that because yeah. he was just always all over the place. Like, and even in the nineties, like when he starts Tin Machine, he's like, yeah, this is gonna be my project. And he really acted like he thought it was going to keep going. Then after two records, like, ah, I'm doing something else. Like, right. Yeah. And, and he never, so even when he, when he, in the nineties, when he was struggling, he still wasn't, you know, kind of doing the same thing over and over yeah. again. I got to ask you one more thing before you go, because yeah. there's that one sound on Ziggy Stardust. There's that, you know, during the opening that there's that one beautiful note that um, Mick Ronson hits that is it's either because it's double tracked or because he's controlling the feedback so perfectly. Do you know the one I'm talking about? I mean, if if you were to play the opening again, would it uh, would it hit you the the thing that I'm talking about? Because I almost feel like I should play it. Um, well, so, so so we know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, I think you should play it so we know what the hell is going uh, uh, on. Yeah, let me see if I, I think I'm pretty sure I have it in here. And I'm talking about the studio version, not not anything else. Uh, I'm going to try to bring it up on my phone because here we go. And let me turn up the volume on the phone. Sounds just like a transistor radio, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, we've really come a long way. That. Oh, that good, good question. Here's yeah. what that, here's what that is. That right there. Here's what that is. What he's doing there is he's he's he double tracks. Yeah. Because that's over a B minor chord. Mm-hmm. So what he's doing there is he's playing two individual notes. It's very Brian May. Yeah. Um, and pre-Brian May, I might add. Um, but he, it's double tracked notes from a chord. So instead of just playing, the, because you can actually play those two notes. Like if you took it. It's it's these two. If I've got my facts right, it would be like it's these two. Okay. Right. But the thing is, you got. So what he's doing, what you're hearing is when you hear that, and this is again very Brian May, the sound of with that you know guy playing a Les Paul mm. using a great finger vibrato. When you hear two notes like that, singing like that. Sounds like violins, you know. Yeah. Like it's, uh, but that's what that is. It's double tracking chord tones instead of playing a chord. And uh, let me see if I can back this thing up. Why can't I get to the individual track? And you hear some of that. I really hate what they did with the new iTunes. The new iTunes, huh? Yeah. Uh, well, the latest iteration, I should say, because yeah. I used to be able to just back the goddamn song up and now I don't even know how I can do that you motherfucker frustrating son of a bitch yeah they, they this thing is now really just created to try to sell you more music and so the control that you used to be able to have over the playback is is not there you know yeah. so I can't even all right. Anyway, thanks for the explanation. Yeah, you got Chief it. Hartel. And where could people find you again? They can find me at the Guitar Bar in Hoboken, New Jersey, where I teach guitar lessons. 201-222-0915 is the phone number. Or find me on Facebook. My name is Keith Hartel. And you are looking at how my name is spelled if you are listening to this on whatever you clicked on to see it. 
Great way to kill a, a switch. That wasn't the right chord for that. Should I use the G. A? No, it's the G. It's the G? The, Big this time. G? Yeah. See? I want to get the feedback thing, so let me try it with the guitar pointed towards the amp. Here we go. I'll fix this in post. Let's see. So it's this G, right? No, no first finger. No first finger. No first finger. It unrocks it. All right, so here we go. everything on the radio these days. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.